Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Ken Levine, who, uh, if you're listening to this, very likely needs no introduction, but he's the, the creator of a seminal series of video games the bioshock series of games uh, he was the writer and creator of, of system shock 2 and, and just like a really iconic video games figure i was very excited to, to talk to ken um i should also mention we recorded this maybe around a month ago so this is kind of before the announcement of the the, the new studio name which is ghost story games and uh pre twitter handle change so he mentions his twitter handle but it's not ig levine it's just at levine um, and also, this is before Breath of the Wild came out, because I feel like that would have uh, had more of a prominent role in the discussion, maybe, uh, if, if that had come out. But this is before all that. Uh, and it was, oh, it was such a treat. It was a really good chat. Like, there was so many great stories. And he brought up a few games that were kind of, uh, seemed, to, seemed to me, anyway, to be, like, forgotten classics. They were games that I hadn't heard of, but they, they were real kind of important games, both in his own kind of appreciation of games and in just the history of games, you know, these... these really obscure sort of uh, Mega Drive or Genesis for the Americans uh, titles. Uh, it was a really thoroughly enjoyable uh, chat. And and hopefully, like, different to many of the other interviews you may have read before. You know, Ken is one of the, the most interviewed, I imagine, video game creators. Um, but I think we touch on a lot of stuff here that you, you wouldn't necessarily normally get, you know, with a, a regular interview. That That's my that's my hope anyway. Um, speaking of which, if this, is, if this happens to be your first show, please do you know, dig back into the archives. There's a ton of really good chats and, you know, they're, they're evergreen, you know, because because we talk about the past and people's relationship with games, you know, there's never anything necessarily current. So, and there's just so much good stuff if, if, if this happens to be your first episode. Uh, also, welcome. Also, thanks. Thanks for downloading. Um, and also, why not rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe and maybe even share the show on, on social media and, and tell a friend, uh, if you like it, of course. If you don't like it, don't say a word. Um, yeah, no, please do. Like, I'm always, I'm always want to try and encourage as many people to to discover the show as possible. Um, so, any kind of shares or ratings or reviews, you know, they all help kind of uh, give the show a little bit more exposure and maybe expose some some new people to it, um, which is always very much uh, appreciated. Um, if you really like the show, there's a Patreon page too, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the money and the, the inclination, all donations are very gratefully received and, and go into making the show as good as it possibly can be. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, thanks, as always, for downloading and listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the chat. I think it's uh, I think it's a good one and I've got a bunch of Oh, I've got some really good good shows coming up. I'm, I'm very excited to share them with you. Um, I'll be back, as always, next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. How, uh, how's it going? How is, how is your Wednesday? It's good. It's good just working. I'm working at home today. 
and um, writing. And um, so it's so it's a good day. Whenever day you can be writing and getting paid for it, it's a good day. It's an absolute thrill. What are you What are you working on? If you're allowed to mention what you're working on. Oh, the game. The game. The new game. Yeah. How is it? Is it is it fun? Because you've kind of scaled down now, right? So this is a much smaller kind of project, relatively, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a different. It's um, it, we just had to make something we could we could make with a much smaller team, and um, but it's a very experimental um, game in a lot of ways in terms of how it's built. Um, it, it's kind of hard to talk about because I don't even really know how to talk about it yet. Like it, it's it's. Um, well, that's why we haven't shown it or anything yeah. because it, it, it's it's different enough that it's similar enough that if you just saw it, you'd think it's similar, but it's different enough that it's actually um, it's built completely differently than anything we've ever built before. Is that like, quite uh, quite exciting? Oh yeah, I mean, I think you know during Infinite, I got to a point where um, I kind of felt that. You know, we had sort of built these these narrative sims in a very particular way. Yeah. And I started to feel like a couple times we were repeating ourselves. And, um, you know, building games that way became – I want to do something a little different. Um, yeah. And so, you know, just even the way we're building this thing is completely different. The way it's, – it's a much more systemic game. Um, even the narrative is built systemically. Yeah. Um, and in a weird way, um, it's very hard to explain. Yeah, I, I, you, you hear me stumbling over my words because I don't really know how to explain it yet. Besides, you know, sitting down for like two hours and showing it to somebody. <laughs> but it, it, that 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 kind of the systemic narrative thing is super interesting because, like, I've, I've had discussions um, about this in the past because, like, I'm a writer. I don't I don't work in games whatsoever. Like, I, I love video games, but um, like, I write sort of plays and, and TV shows and stuff and. The, like it's one of those classic things you know automation is going to take over everything so, but it's not going to take over writing surely but of course it will like it'll take over everything and well remember the systemic it's not like a i'm writing the dialogue's all being written by humans the narrative is being the conceptual narrative is being constructed by humans its responsiveness to player action is where the systemic work comes in okay um, Highly. So this is not like robots are not. This is not like we're not doing something like um, um, No Man's Sky, where you know where the human hand doesn't really go anywhere near. It. You know, it's very much the human hand here. It's yeah. just a combination of the human hand and things computers do really well that creates a um, an experience that's more replayable. And far more responsive to player input than a traditional narrative. Because, you know, honestly, most narrative games have really almost no response to player input, where highly systemic games do. Yeah. Because, you know, um, because, you know the, the systems know how to respond like, um, in a way that that, that sort of fixed, fixed narrative doesn't. So it's this very strange hybrid. I'm, I'm very excited to, to, to play it. I mean... The other thing I thought would be quite interesting is the the, the scale of it because, like, one of the reasons I, I I want to do the show, one of the things I enjoy most about it is kind of uh, shining a spotlight on developers because there's very few developers that have any kind of 
identity you know people don't look at uh, developers in the same way they'd look at movie directors and stuff it's a classic thing uh, but you're one of the exceptions like you're one of the the few who like you know you're you can feel this is a, a Ken Levine game there is a very obvious sense of an author with it and I imagine with as these games scale up that becomes harder and harder to kind of keep track of so sort of scaling down must be quite exciting in that sense maybe I'm projecting there I don't know you can contradict me but that that's the sense I get well, scaling down, you know, or working with a smaller team is just allows you to work in a way that working with a larger team doesn't. It allows you to fail more because when you make a when you make a, a mistake that costs a week in a team with 150 people, that costs a lot of money. If you make a mistake a mistake that costs a week with a team that's 25 people, that's yeah. a very different proposition. So you're you're um, your ability to be, um, you become less risk adverse because you're able to make mistakes without the world exploding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why we're also not talking about release dates or anything like that because we don't want to be tied to any external factor um, in terms of finding the right, you know, making sure we get this right. Yeah. So you've got the room to, to fail in this range. Yeah. Um, it is very supportive of, of, of it and you know they really give us our space and they give us the time we need and we have that luxury that i didn't have you know back in the day when i was an indie developer you know there was always a there was always a much more you know you had milestone schedules and Absolutely, you had payments yeah. tied to it and that was you know if you miss that milestone well guess what you know how are you going to pay your people exactly um, I've, I've just barreled right into this. I should do a, a formal introduction for the sake of continuity. So, uh, Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm Ken Levine. I'm the creative director of the former Rational Games. Um, and I worked on uh, Bioshock and System Shock 2 and Thief back in the day and Freedom Force. Um, so I've been around for a while. Um, is it fair what I said earlier about the fact that you could feel that you know you were playing a Ken Levine game, like it felt authored? I'm sure there were a thousand people with a million ideas, kind of all that all ended up in the mix, but it, they always felt very, very written, very, very you know um, specifically designed, and there was a certain tone to them. Like, do you think that's that's fair? Like, did you feel that when you were making them? I, I, I don't think it. I don't think there's any more or less balance. Like you know, I think teams all balance very similarly. There are a huge amount of people contributing a you know huge amount of things. I think the only reason ours may feel a little differently is because I'm the I was the the boss and the writer. Yeah. So writing took a precedence at the company that you know when you're a writer. I have friends who are writers at a game companies, and you know a lot of times the writing doesn't get a chance to get the same kind of prominence because the guy, the writer, <laughs> the writer is not calling the financial shots, no. at, you know, at the company. So, you know, people ask me all the time, like, Oh, how do you become a creative director at a company? How do you? And I say, the only answer I have is, well, start a company and call yourself the creative director <laughs> because I, it, I don't, it's a very, I'm in a really unique position by having been a co-founder of the company yeah. and being a writer. I don't think it's really anything particular about my voice as a writer or anything. It's just I get to, I get the narrative gets a lot more focus in our games um, because I get to say it does. Excellent. 
Um, well, let's let's meander back then, Ken. Um, if you can, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Well, I, I before there were actual video games, I remember going to an arcade by my grandmother's house in Queens, New York, and they had these uh, electromechanical games. You know, like an old baseball game where you know a physical silver ball, you know, metal pinball would come out of a out of a thing and you hit an electric button and a bat would swing and it, and the ball would fly through the air and like land and you know a single double triple sorry i know you're you're are you english i'm i'm welsh but that's fine welsh you are from the united kingdom i'm from the united I know you kingdom don't have, yeah. you don't have american baseball there but you know some outcome of I've seen american movies, baseball happened fine. based upon physically where the ball landed so they had these mechanical machines with physical components like pinball machines yeah. those are the first ones i played I remember another like Wild West shootout one where you were shooting actual, you know, you have this glass casing, these two little dolls dressed like cowboys, and my brother's on one side in a little like the train set town of a Wild West town, and I'm on the other. You're holding these little pistols and you're sort of aiming these these aim at each other, and then you shoot these little metal balls, and if the balls hit the little cowboy, he falls over. Um, they sound amazing. Those really cool. Yeah, those are cool, and I, I, I there's a lot of love for that, and I think you hear in Bioshock One, you hear. There's a lot of electromechanical machines in Bioshock One, and that's sort of my childhood gaming experience. Coming out, like you know, all the sound effects around the vending machines and stuff are very um, probably you know come from those deep memories of playing those types of games and pinball games when I was like a little kid. And they must and still then, be around somewhere though, right? Like those games, like probably, yeah. in some museum somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, they're not. It's not like common. Like you'll find you know a Pac-Man machine still, but I'm sure they're somewhere. Um, they're pretty cool. I don't. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know what number they were produced in. They probably. They certainly weren't as easy to mass produce as you know a, a Pac-Man machine because you know you actually had, like you know the Wild West town had this little like a train set town built in it. You know in this big glass case, which I think was custom work. But um, I don't amazing. know. Sure. So where, where next? Like, what was your first experience of like a, a, a computer game, a video game? Yeah, I mean it's probably. The first ones, because I'm, 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 you know, I'm old enough where Pong. I remember when Pong came out, and I remember when Breakout came out. I remember when um, Asteroids came out. I remember all those things, and I sort of engaged with them as they happened. I was very much entranced from the moment I encountered video, you know, electronic gaming. What sort of age uh, were you when those sort of they came out? Well, let's see, Pong. I guess I think Pong was like '74 or something. So. Let's see, Pong. When did Pong come out? Pong came out. Am I allowed to Google while we... Oh, of course, um, yeah. Interview? It's encouraged. 72. So I was only six when Pong came out. Um, or seven, maybe. And um, that sounds about right. Yeah. And um, and then, yeah, I was pretty young. I was very young. I, I connected to gaming, like, boom, right from the start. I was fascinated by them. Yeah, because, like, especially... Um, like, I don't know if you would have... If they would have been around in like the the original cabinets and stuff but they're, they're still some of the most futuristic looking things in the world like the original pong cabinet is is a real thing of beauty like the, yeah, just like the, the shape of it and stuff modular and yeah. yeah modular it's not a word but you get the idea yeah yeah absolutely so would they would they have been in the same sort of like arcades and stuff where you would have played these little mechanical games and things yeah i mean they started appearing i remember they would appear in um you know and in restaurants like in the lounge where they have those sit down versions of those things 
Um, and there was an arcade I used to go to um, out of Nathan's. There's a restaurant called Nathan's that started in Coney Island that sells these hot dogs. And they I, have this I, Nathan's. Know, I know that exactly. They have the hot dog eating competition every year, do they yep. not? Yep. And they had a Nathan's nearby me in, in – and, and in like a mall or something and they had an arcade a big arcade in the back and i used to go there and check out the games all the time was there was there like a community of people that would go there would they would you like make friends at the arcade or was it just very much you go there by yourself and watch no it's probably a lot of pimply you know teenagers and smoking cigarettes because you could do that back then in the yeah. arcade you know i remember going when i was this i was sort of a bit of a uh a, a small bit of a juvenile delinquent when I was a kid, and so I there was an our there was a bowling alley up at my house, and I used to go up there and I used to like you know we used to scab cigarettes from my friend's mother's like purse and go up there and like smoke. I was we were still like thirteen years old. This is the seventies. <laughs> we're like smoking cigarettes, like playing our asteroids um, at this bowling alley that was called, um, fantasy lanes based on the end. Cause it was the time that, that fantasy Island show was on TV yeah. and they had a lounge next to it called tattoos lounge. Remember the little guy on, on fantasy Island? The, yeah, um, yeah. 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 The, the, the planes, the planes. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had a lounge called tattoos lounge and twisted sister used to play there. Um, it, it was like, Are you sure you didn't grow up house. in some sort of eighties sitcom. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was, you know, it was, you know, you, you you could make a movie about my teenage years there, and it would look like the bad news. You know, like the bad news bear, like a '70s film, like the bad news bears with Jackie O'Haley, who went on to play um, Rorschach in, yes, in Water. Yes, he did. Yeah, but he was he played the tough kid in the movie The Bad News Bears, and he used to smoke cigarettes and like drive a motorcycle, and I was like, just wanted to be him so badly. So, like, with this kind of image in mind, you know, these kind of like delinquent kids. Were, were the arcades, were video games seen as kind of another aspect of that? They weren't kind of nerdified yet, to use the term. Yeah, like, I think it was a mix. I think you had a mix of like, of like, um, you know, ner- little nerdy kids. There was no culture. Let me step back. There really was no culture at the time, right? There yeah. was no nerd culture. It was like the loser kids like me, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. Um and we were fascinated by the, you know, fascinated by machines. And part of it was, I think, is because machines were something you could play with that would never be mean to you, you know. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, you know, the draw that has been the draw of kids on the sort of the out, you know, kids in the out group tend to have been drawn to, I think, video games because the the it's an interaction that's not nearly as complex or fraught with peril as human interaction can be at least that was my experience of it and i really liked it because it was a friend i could play with that was always available that um that never had to go home that never would do anything you know mean and um and that's what games were to me and i could always play with them and that i didn't have that in my life so that must it must have been a wonderful moment when you realized you could have these things in your home then i'm assuming you were first in line for this yeah, I was first in line. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't first um, in money. So it, it was uh, eighth grade on Hanukkah or Christmas. Uh, my mom, my parents got me an Atari. And that was like, I was like, the, I used to, my wife always jokes at me. She's like, yeah, I, I know you say, you know, getting married is the happiest day of your life. But I know what the happiest day of your <laughs> life is when you got that Atari. Um, I was very excited. 
And was was this a, a, a shared love? Like, did you play? You said your brother pleased to play this Wild West game with you, but was it a family thing, or was it just it was yours? Uh, no, my my family never really got it, or you know, or not, not that it's important to get it, but it was never the thing. And it and to be and it's hard to, you know, I think it's very hard for young people to realize now that it it wasn't anybody's thing. It was a very fringe activity for a long time, especially computer games. Like, yeah, people played Atari for a while, but it wasn't like, it wasn't part of the culture in the way it is now. Um, it was, you know, there, it was a very, it was a fringe and computer gaming was really fringe, like really fringe. So were there any 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 of the kind of early Atari games that really kind of stand out in your memory as being kind of especially impactful for whatever reason? Yeah, I think the game Adventure. Do you ever play Adventure? I have played Adventure, yeah. yeah. Because that was the first game, if you think about that game, it's quite innovative. Um, it was the first game where you picked up objects and held them. Yeah. It was the first kind of exploration game as well, really. Exactly right. Exploration and mazes and puzzles within the... It, it really was... I think the forerunner in a lot of ways of what most modern and, you know, sort of exploration adventure games are, um, uncharted or Bioshock, even, you know, they, they are Zelda, they all really go back to adventure and, you know, it had an action component with fighting those, those chicken dragons. Um, for those who've never seen the game, the dragons look just like chickens. Yes. Um, and, um, and then like it had, of course, had the first Easter egg, right? Oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, if you actually go and you put the bridge, there was this bridge that you cross between walls. And, you know, for those who can't picture this in their head, um, who have never seen it, who want to picture it in their head, it, it basically looked like a very low-resolution version of Pac-Man. Like, it was not like what you think of when you think of modern adventure games. It was it was really crude. Yeah. Um, but there was actually an Easter egg, the first one in the game. You would, um, to my understanding, you would put this bridge that you cross between walls and you would go to a screen that's not on the main that you that you've never seen before if you put it in exactly the right place and had the guys walter robinette the guy who created the game you see his name there and did you discover that at the time or is this just something you've you've known about in retrospect i think it was came out in the lore at the time um I, i'm not entirely sure if i discovered it later but i i, I didn't you know certainly I, I heard about it nobody you know i didn't i certainly didn't find it no not for not for want to you know exploring every nook and cranny of that game yeah yeah i was you know, just curious as to like how how you would discover that you know because as you said it's still like super niche so they wouldn't there's not they, obviously there's no internet but there's also maybe not really like a huge sort of press contingent or or even like local community of people playing well they used to have these things back then there was a, a press of sorts but it was not wasn't really magazines they would release these books like when pac-man came out um that would give you patterns for how to beat the game that you would memorize because like pac-man is actually a fully deterministic system if you if you go if you the player acts in a certain way the computer will act in a certain way so like if you go like they can actually say to defeat the first maze go left right up down left right left right up down grab the um you know grab the palette power palette go up left down right and you and yeah. that would be consistently a way you could do the game same with space invaders um, asteroids, not really, because you know it was like a, you know that had some element of simulation in it. But um, you buy these these short these these sort of um, soft cover books that would have all these like codes in them, not codes like you think now putting in, but um, ways to beat the game. 
by playing it in this very rote fashion. I'd never heard of this. That's, I mean, I'd heard of these kind of strategies, but I never realized they would have released books, like especially kind of contemporary to when the games were released. That's, yeah. that's yeah. very surprising. Yeah, and I'd go in and like be stuck on a level, and you know, I, I, I didn't want to pay for the book because I was too you know, poor. Not poor. That's not fair. I was, I was kid poor. You know, my parents didn't give me a big allowance. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so how did how did the, how did it progress then? Like, where did you go from there? I'm assuming you were locked in there, and you were just seeking for the the next kind of fix of video games. Yeah, and then you know the Apple II came out, and the Atari 800, and I found friends who had those because I didn't have them, and I would sort of like glom myself onto them, and you know play the games whenever I could. I, I would go sleep over their house and I would just stay up all night playing, literally all night, playing games while they slept. Like, I'd hang out with them until they got tired and then I would just play their computer all night long. Routine, routinely. Um, and and, and uh, they were fine with this, I'm assuming. Um, I, I think I was a pretty forceful presence, you know, in terms <laughs> of, like... I don't know. I think so. But, you know, it's probably weird that you have some kid come over and he's like, supposed to sleep over your house and then he just sits there and plays your computer all night long. Um, but I was I was obsessed. And do you think, like, genuinely you were... Do you think the fact that you didn't have access to them made you kind of more obsessed? You know, you, this, this thing that's just out of reach, so... I'm not sure because once I got my own computers, I, I still stayed up all night long playing them. I had like the first computer I ever got was a, you know, a Mac SE, and there was a very limited set of games for that. But I would, I remember in college, you know, my girlfriend being asleep and me just up all night playing Dark Castle or whatever, whatever five games were out for the Mac at that time. So this is the thing I, I sort of I, I speak to everyone about is you know the the myth of college, I guess, is that you can go and you can you can reinvent yourself, you can be whoever you want to be. So you know computers and computer games especially was still relatively niche so did you go with kind of would it have been uncool at that point like would you have gone to university and be like oh no, i don't play games like they're, they're just for nerds i'm gonna i'm gonna reinvent myself i'm gonna be the cool kid or were you just like doubling down and i'm gonna find people like me and play games with yeah i i don't think i ever thought i i, I don't think i was ever thought i'd be good at hiding it you know because i like playing them so much yeah um and I played them all the time. And I think most people are like, just sort of as a, as a weird, um, what do you call it? Um, a peculiarity, right? You know, it's like, oh, he, why does he spend all this time doing this thing? Because no, I didn't have friends who were doing it. I mean, nobody really did it. I mean, there's like one or two kids at the college we'd, you know, exchange games. Um, but that's really it. It was very very fringe were you were you like an evangelist of sorts like did you try and kind of you know pull pe people over and, and tell them how amazing it was or were you just happy to have it to yourself i don't think i really necessarily wanted a bunch of people coming over and like playing <laughs> my mac se you know playing dark castle my mac se so i couldn't play with it so no no i i don't think i was a particularly strong Evangelist, I guess a few years later, I started becoming more of it when I found people at least I thought had a chance to be converted. But I was always like the most in any group I was in. I was usually the hardest core of computer of computer gamers. So, what did you do at university? I'm assuming uh, maybe you were thinking this, but I'm assuming that you weren't thinking I could make video games. Like, do you remember a point where that occurred to you? No. Not never, not until really, not until right before I got in the industry. I never even thought that there were like I never really considered that like something I could do because I wasn't a programmer. So what did you um, do in university? 
I was, well, I was a drama major and I, I put on plays and I, I, I directed and I wrote plays and um, wrote my first screenplay or two, a few screenplays there. Um, got an agent in Hollywood. Uh, so I was very focused on that stuff in terms of, okay, well, I guess maybe I'll be a writer. Um, but I never thought about it in the context of games. So, you know, it wasn't like there were a lot of writing to do in video games. Well, absolutely, that. yeah. So this and was sir- just something you, you just loved and would, you know, take all your time with, yeah? Yep, yep. So absolutely. What, what about it from that period then? Are there any games that kind of stand out from the kind of university or like early computer uh, games that you played? Yeah, so this is like the 80s. Um, yeah, there's some cool arcade games. I played a lot of Yar Kung Fu. I played a lot of Akari Warriors. I love that game. Um, I played um, on the on the sort of PCs and stuff. I played um, there's the original cast of Wolfenstein, not the one that it did. Okay. That was licensed from a, another company called uh, Synapse Software, uh, I think they're called, and um, uh, maybe that's the wrong name. But it was a overhead sort of st- stealth game. It was the first stealth game, really, that I ever saw. It was sort of overhead and um, looked like played sort of like that game Berserk. Okay. Uh, but you're trying to escape from this Nazi castle, and it was uh, it was it was um, permadeath. So like it was brutally hard and permadeath. It made Dark Souls look like Candyland. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know, like you know, it'd be interesting to release a game that is that brutal. Um, now, because I mean, it is there are brutal games and they're coming back, which is great. But this game was brutal. But you get so scared that you know you'd be sitting in a room like searching a treasure chest, and it was an old game, so they did you know a lot of ga- old games did things that would be inconceivable now. So like searching a treasure chest was this countdown that was probably literally forty or fifty seconds. <laughs> you'd sit there and just basically say searching the chest. Now, of course, at that time, one of the Nazi guards could walk into the room. And when he walked in the room, he spoke in this really early digitized voice. He called like, Achtung, or, 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 or Amerikaner Schweinhund, or something. <laughs> really crude. And forgive all your German listeners. Please forgive my terrible um, stab at German there. It's just out of memory from the game. And you would jump like through the roof because if you fail, it's like if they got shot, then you died. And it was like one hit, one kill. And can you move when you you know you're waiting for this chest to open? You could, but you just had to like find a way out of the room. Um, no, 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 you couldn't move while you're waiting for the chest. You just had to sit there for literally forty or fifty seconds. That's horrific. I mean, you would never do like design things. You would never do now. Um, and but but you were terrified because the um, these guys could come in and say and then kill you, and then you have to go back to the, literally the very beginning of the game. That that is brutal but you know it keeps it with no unlocks no no like roguelike unlocks or anything just boom back to beginning fuck you well uh, uh, th- th- this is interesting though so like you you had this kind of passion for them but what do you think you were getting out of them you know like do you was it just the kind of the thrill of the challenge of it or were you kind of projecting stories and ideas onto them that you know either were or weren't intended yeah yeah I, like certainly i was the worlds were richer to me than what was happening on the screen, right? Because what was happening on the screen was not very much. You used to have games like Temple of Apshai, which was another overhead, sort of like early dungeon exploration game. Yeah. But literally the rooms were just um, black square, you know, like rectangles. Um, and there was nothing in that. But they actually came with a book 
it would say what the room number was and you'd go then to the book that physical book that would come with the game and read the description of the room from the book yeah, so that, find, that is very inconceivable the current climate oh yeah you, you, you would um it, you would the game there'd be combat and stuff in the game and the, the engine could show that should show a very simple like monochromatic monster on the apple II coming in and like fighting you but it couldn't render anything in the room besides just the rectangular shape of it literally that's all and that's, that's in 2d overhead 2d i'm not talking about 3d yeah i mean that, that does sound i mean there, there is something to i mean i i don't think i would have the patience for that anymore but there's something quite nice about that is this it's, it's almost experimental in a way you could imagine some you know indie game company you know producing that at gdc like in a couple of weeks so yeah you get a free book you have to read what it is yeah, I mean, I mean that's that's interesting. That somebody could could do that model again as an experiment. You know, it's not a really a mass market proposition, obviously, but I don't. It certainly, it certainly might be an interesting. It's a hybrid of literature and gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, literature is probably a, a generous term to use for what the descriptions were in that book. <laughs> but but you could, you know, you could sort of make a more elevated version of that. Yeah, uh, and tell any kind of story. So you know you've finished university you've got an agent like are you still after university you still just invested in games like hey how does how does your interest progress what do you move on to do you stick with computers or do you get consoles yeah i mean i had a pc um so i moved to san francisco and then la and and i remember right (laughs) this is terrible and, and and i still feel bad about it i was dating this girl who lived with me in san francisco but she was going back to college we met at college yeah and she was a year younger and the day she was going back is the day i got my nintendo and zelda and instead of spending that last day with her where i should have and been a decent human being <laughs> i played zelda and she just like sat there like looking at me like and we didn't last much longer after that i have like i can imagine part of it but um zelda I mean, imagine the first time you encountered Zelda. Oh, it, oh. it was like, blew my mind. It, the, there was nothing with that kind of richness to it that I had seen on a console, certainly. And Did you try and justify it to her, though? Like, would you be like, I look, I know we should be hanging out, but look at this. Like, do you not understand how amazing I, I this I, is? I think I tried to show it to her. You know, I had a revelation about it. I think the thing you're talking about. Um, so, so for years, you know, I made video games and my parents really seemed not to really understand it at all like and then we made bioshock and i think and they got that that's the first one they got and i they said they actually they and i think that's because the graphics were up until the point of like 2000 and you know 2005 2007 the graphics were so crude that they couldn't really approximate what a normal human being would think is an actual space like if you go back and look at xbox one you know the original xbox games or ps2 games no no normal adult is going to look at those things like oh that looks like a real room or a real yeah. city right by the time you got to bioshock you had the rent and you know oblivion and games like that you had the rendering power to sort of start approximating real things and therefore i think people around me even if they didn't play games at least could understand that it wasn't some weird abstract activity that had no connection to reality yeah so, so the, this, this girl at the time didn't see that, obviously. <laughs> I mean, Zelda's, you know, Zelda on the on the SNES, on the not even the SNES, the original NES. It's pretty crude. If you go back to it, it's a pretty crude-looking proposition. Um, at the time, it felt incredibly deep and complex and rich. But you know, it's actually a very simple 
brilliant but simple construction. Um, and was this like I mean, aside from from uh, this this poor woman, uh, was this still uh, a relatively solitary thing that you would do, or had you started to meet other people in like San Francisco or LA that were just as interested as you were? I had a high school friend, um, I'm still friends with, um, who was living in LA with me at the time, and we we used to play. He was one of the guys I he was probably the most into it besides me. Um, games and he turned me on to a lot of things and he had a PC when I didn't have one so you know, he showed me XCOM and Wing Commander and all those games were coming out in the early 90s um, um, he was out there so he had an Amiga at the time so I was still going to his house like in high school I used to go to his house play his Atari 800 all night now in San Francisco I go to his house and play his Amiga all night and then play his, his IBM PC when he got one you know his, his XT or whatever with a you know uh, Adelib sound card and a vga you know um you know vga graphics chip in it and and did you ever dabble with like making anything like even like simple basic things when you first got access to computers yeah in high school so i said i found this kid and a few other friends i used to play D with they were the only kids i knew who liked any of this stuff and we would meet in the computer lab in the morning like that's how nerdy we were <laughs> that's where we all that's where we'd go to first in the morning and we'd hang out together and they had these pet, these computers called pets, um, yep. and they were you know just very basic. Um, and you know we saw you program big games in basic, very rudimentary games in basic. But I, I don't think I ever really had a knack for for programming of any kind. But you know I think I where I was gaining the experience had become relevant at that time when I was in high school and college was starting to produce plays, starting to write plays and produce plays because production, putting something together, whether it's a magazine or a play or a video game. There's a lot in common of the process of production of all those things. So by the time I started my company, it wasn't um, it, I, the games hadn't provided me any development experience, really. But the but the process of being of producing things had. Yeah. Just like working with a group of people, essentially, and everyone has their specific roles and you're, you're corralling that essentially. Yep. And scheduling things and planning things and most importantly, learning how you have this original vision of something. And how it's ne- how it's it's never going to be that vision. It gets chipped away, and making sure you chip away in the right way because you know you always have this huge massive vision in your head which nobody could ever actually create for any time you do something. Yeah. And what a good developer or a good writer was is they they find a way to make that vision meet reality and have a very soft landing. Um, that's that a that's a skill set you learn when you produce things because you have to still make the thing which excited you so much we have to do it in a way that can actually get done i'm curious like because i've been involved in putting on plays and stuff myself and, and making short films and things and the, the classic sort of idea is that you know you write the story three times you do it once with the script and then you do it again on set and you do it again with the edit um, yeah. but with games like is there an edit point because I feel like there's so much involved in it, or is it just a constant state of chipping stuff away? Because it's not like you can, like, or maybe it is, I don't know, finish a game and then play through the whole thing. And be like, oh, maybe we'll trim down that section and cut that section. Well, yeah. So, I mean, games are, movies are, um, you know, a process. You do get to a point where you have a script, right? And yeah. then you can start building from that script. With games, and that's when you start hiring people, right? You start hiring a whole bunch of people to make your movie. And by the time you go to a film set, you know, and you have, it's not like you have 300 people waiting for you, you know, while you're writing the screenplay at the beginning. You know, yeah. that's why you, that, it's very cheap to develop those things relatively. In games, you're sort of doing it all at once. 
Um, I, I don't sit down and write a script first. Like yesterday, we were going over. We got to a really interesting situation yesterday where um, I had the very fortunate surprise of finding out that one of my uh, the animator is actually an excellent storyboarder, um, and good storyboarders are actually easy to find. So he had actually taken the liberty of a sequence I described at the opening of the game of going and storyboarding it, which was like hugely generous of him and, and thoughtful. And then I looked at it and my problem was at the time was, and he did an excellent job of storyboarding it, is that you don't, I hadn't written the script yet because I'm still waiting to know all the pieces of information I need to get across at that moment. Yeah. And I won't know that till the game, you know, there's a lot more game. So the gameplay is more refined to, the, there are certain aspects of the other story we have to answer. Um, so it's not like you sit down and start at page one. You, I don't even really touch, I don't really understand the main characters until probably a year in sometimes, who they are, um, or more. Like I just, in the new game, just a few months ago, we really, really solidified on who the title character of the game is. That sounds really not frustrating but like i i'm definitely projecting here but i would find that quite difficult i think like the the to just constantly to, to never have a, a a thing to be working from but just to have this kind of amorphous blob of ideas that you're gradually kind of forming into shape well well you well you start with some solidity right but the question yeah. is what solidity do you need first right so the main character the role of them from a gameplay perspective was important, but but how they who they were and what they how they fit in the narrative okay wasn't as and but if you trust yourself and you trust the team, you find out that you've actually had. So one day I was running, and I started thinking, okay, I really want to start digging into the main character more right now, and something occurred to me about who they were a sentence came out of the sky basically it hit in the head which was a line the character has in the game probably their their define one of their defining lines and it was it, it and all of a sudden i understood who the character was and it turned out that that character exactly suited the gameplay role of the character as well the per you know the persona that yeah. i had come out of the sky and that's not an accident that's because all along, there was a you know a program running in the back of my head, and you know, in, and probably entered into conversations I had with people and ideas I had gotten from people, which was building up to that point. That's why I came out of the sky because it wasn't just like okay, now let's come up with an arbitrary character. It was informed by everything we had done to that point. Yeah, that's the the best feeling in the whole world when something finally clicks and you just the the idea just comes to you out of nowhere. It's it's, oh, yeah. it's the it's the best. Um, yeah. So, Sorry. Go ahead. So, so what were you doing uh, in LA? Like, obviously, you're writing scripts. So, like, how, how did that go? Did you did anything come of that? I got hired to do a rewrite for Paramount Pictures um, of a movie. Do you know the Christian rock singer Amy Grant? Um, no, I don't think so. So, there's a Christian rock singer, and forgive me if that's not the right if that's not the right terminology used. That's what that's what I, I recall her being called. Um, you know, she sings rock music of a, you know that uh, for um, you know for for Christians, for God. Or, yeah, about God. Usually, usually you know devotional kind of stuff, but in a yeah, rock yeah, form. Yeah. And she had one breakout hit in the late '80s called "Baby, Baby," I think it was called. And so they decided they wanted to make her into a movie star. And so they had commissioned somebody to write a script um, about a woman who falls in love with a with a, a devil in human form. 
and this perfect woman. It's like a romantic comedy. About okay. This. <laughs> and the first draft they had, it didn't really work out for them, so they were looking for a rewrite. And so I, they had read a screenplay of mine after I got my, one of my agents um, that I adapted from a play I'd written. And they loved it. And they didn't, what generally happens is when they find a script they love, like that from a new writer, is they don't make that movie. They say, oh, he can go rewrite our romantic comedy or yeah, our, yeah. Our, or our film, our action film starring The Rock or whatever, you know. Um, so I got hired to do this rewrite romantic comedy. And it turns out, huh, lo and behold, the romantic comedy is not really my thing. Um, <laughs> and um, it was terrible. I, did, I don't think I did a very good job. And, you know, that, that ended up, I got, you know, made some money, but that didn't work out. Um, and then I was sort of got introduced to the world of Hollywood, really, of like trying to get work and going to pitch to people and working with producers and having literally no money. And when you have no money, you're desperate. And the last thing you want to be in Hollywood is seeming like you're desperate. And so it was hard. It was really rough because you, you know, people when people smell desperation on you in that town, <laughs> they kind of start ignoring you. So I was really alone. And, you know, I felt like a failure and my girlfriend probably with some justification because the legend of Zelda had broken up with me. Um, <laughs> um, and it was rough. And how long, and how long was that, that, that gone for that? That's sort of probably period. two years, two years, probably. I'm curious then <laughs> if, cause I try and ask everybody about this. Like, were games some sort of salve for you then? Were they like a warm blanket? Because you know, uh, games give you, you, you do something, you get a reward, you know? The, the world makes sense when you play a video game, which obviously it doesn't in life. Yeah, I, I you know, we play games because um, this is something, some topics I'm thinking about in the new game. You know, we, we play games because, to some degree, because we feel control. Absolutely, in, in, yeah. Experience, but we don't feel in the real world. We don't feel a sense of control in the real world. Even though games are hard and challenging, at the end of the day, they're quite manageable, you know, you know, compared to life. Um, so yeah, I imagine I, w I would, I disappeared quite a lot into video games on there. And there was a time that like rent, I was renting, like you could rent cartridges for your, uh, this is the sort of, see, I like how we're progressing through the years here, the consoles. You know, yeah. This is the SNES, the SNES Genesis period. So I'd go to the movie, various movie stores and rent just, I just remember renting, renting, renting cartridges for the uh, various. I had both. I had both the SNES and the Genesis, and just renting, renting, renting cartridges and playing different games and escaping that way. Did anything? Did any of those sort of stand out? Have you got any stand out sort of Super Nintendo or, or Genesis games that stick with you to the day, to this day? Yep. I lived with a bunch of guys in LA, and um, um, we had a Genesis. I remember we used to play a lot of Road Rash. We used to play a lot of Star Control, a competitive Star Control, and um, those are the two big ones in the house. And but then you know, still playing you know games on the Zelda games on the SNES. I, I really love the SNES. I thought it was a great system. Oh, it's amazing. Um, but and you know all the all the sort of standard ones. But then you get into weird stuff like Herzog's Lie on the Genesis. Do you remember that game? I don't remember that game. No. So that was the first real time strategy game. Um, you act, it, you should go look it up. It, it's I've got a weird German name, Herzog Zwei. Um, is Zwei is that one two three four? Is Zwei four or three? Um, I don't know. I'll look it up. Zog three or whatever. Uh, I I think it's three. Um, your, your German audience is gonna like murder me <laughs> uh, for, this, for this interview. Um, 
Yeah, so there were some great games and really unique, weird Japanese games that I was playing back then. And um, two, Zvi is two, two Herzog yes. two. Uh, I guess maybe oh maybe it's a sequel. Maybe it's a sequel. Yeah. Maybe it's a Herzog one. Um, so, but it was a very it really was. If people 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 think about like um, Command and Conquer being the first RTS, this is really the first RTS. Not to take anything away from Command and Conquer, which is awesome. It says on uh, on Wikipedia, it's got it's classed as a real time strategy and as a MOBA, which is interesting. Oh my god, it really is a MOBA too. It, it, it's it's look, it's one of those games like Castle Wolfenstein. I think that nobody really remembers very well, but were probably some of the most innovative games ever created, and that you could point directly to. I didn't, yeah, you could definitely point to MOBAs. Absolutely, you were you were, you had a main unit and you would spawn other units. And those units would sort of fight in an autonomous fashion. And you're at the top of the screen. Your enemy is at the bottom of the screen, I remember. And you're trying to advance up the field. Oh, my God. It totally was a MOBA. That's you're really right. interesting. Um, so, so when when did the shift... 1981. That's like... No, sorry. 1992 or something. Um, you know, it's a long time ago. 1989, it came out in Japan, which oh, is insane. Yeah. Um, so, so when did the shift happen then? When did, when did you move from... Uh, from writing screenplays and stuff to to video games well so i sort of failed out of screenwriting you know and um i was in la and i wasn't really having a great time and i just sort of decided i gave up you know i I said i can't do it i wasn't getting any work and it was very frustrating and so i quit and i sort of drifted around for a bunch of years and um did you know i was a computer consultant i was you know installing macs for people and um you know early networking stuff and i was a graphic designer sort of i wasn't very good but i you know i can do i can make enough money to sort of live on and um and did you stick around la or is this kind of all yeah i stayed in la i stayed in la and um i just i just sort of floated for a few years, it really knocked. Failing as a screenwriter really knocked the wind out of my sails. But was it a pointed um, thing, like not to write anymore? Like was that because you, you surely have to make a choice to say, right, uh, this isn't working. Do you when you say you failed out? Does that mean you just right? I I stop. I quit. I'm not going to write any more stuff. Well, yeah. Well, it wasn't like I'm not going to write. And I'm going to punish myself. I always found writing very hard. Yeah, I thought I was okay at it, but I it was very hard work and. I'd rather be doing almost anything until very recently. I generally would have rather be doing almost anything else. So I, I allowed myself to stop forcing myself to write. Yeah. Um, And that was, that was relatively easy to do. And there were years went by and wrote nothing. You know, I used to be writing three or four screenplays a year and then I'd write nothing for years. Um, And then a few years later, a old college friend of mine, who I used to produce plays with in college, a guy named Will Wood, calls me up and he says um he had been in la and he had sort of given up on acting i think i don't want to put words in his mouth but i sense is that he had sort of some la's acting is out for me he moved back to new york and he called me up and he said um i got a grant to do a play in idaho this summer in boise and i like you to write commission you to write it and i was like uh i haven't read a play in like a very long time but it was very little money. It was like, I don't know, it was like a trivial amount of money. Um, it's but still it was really kind of, nice to be thought of, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, look, look, the fact that he 
you know, I directly credit this to me getting becoming a creative person again. He sort of remembered me and believed in me and called me up and said, I want you to do this thing. And he kind of forced me to do it. And uh, he was always a guy who would sort of force me to, you know, get me out of, the, you know, get me rolling when I, I didn't have the motivation. He's, he's pretty good at that. Um, and, and I own a lot for that. Um, and, um, you know, Will said, um, go, you know, write this play. And I wrote it and he uh, read it and liked it and then gave me some really helpful, really, really, really interesting notes on it and really opened it up creatively a bit. And I rewrote it and we even put it on. And I spent three weeks in Idaho and had a great time. And the play went really well and was in a really creative environment again. And I kind of came back to L.A. and said, all right, no, I got to like get my ass back in gear and become a creative person and um, try to make a go of that again because I'm not ready to give up. And what was the what was the play? I'm curious. Have you got a lot of play? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, so it was called this. It was an adaptation of the Greek play called The Sestrata, which was a com- the Greek play was a comedy about a woman who stages a sex strike. So nobody will sleep with their husbands. So, so the Spartans and the Athen, the Athenians stop fighting the war they're fighting. So the Athenian and the Spartan women get together and say, we're having a sex strike. And I, I thought of that as a serious, that was sort of the first political, any kind of political thing I ever wrote in the sense that I was like, well, what happens if you sort of, you know, sort of maybe as a joke, say we can do this sex strike and then people take it seriously and you become a leader of a political movement. What's that? And then like, that political movement becomes, you know, like all political movements becomes complicated and people start following you and maybe people are following you become hurt, get hurt. Um, cause you know, politics often yeah. involved, you know, can lead to, lead to other things. And, and then like this woman sort of finds herself as a leader of this rebellion essentially. And she didn't know she really wanted to be that and, and was struggling with that. And what's it like to struggle with being, find yourself in a position of leadership and I thought it was pretty good, actually. That's a good um, pitch. I'm still pretty fond of it. Um, and I, I thought about maybe trying to put it on somewhere. Um, in fact, I've been talking to this guy, Will, about maybe doing that because he directed it uh, in Idaho. Um, but, you know, it's an issue of time primarily. Yeah. Um, but um, it's it's a nice story. And if you look back on it, 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 you know, you can sort of see a kind of, you know, philosophical quite questions slash nonsense I've you know I kept engaging with later on in the games um you know about you know people and and you know the intersection of people and power yeah um and um I never heard anything like that before but that was that was that was um cool that was that was pretty cool so that this sort of kick-started your, your creative juices so but but yes. where where did the, the games come in like where does this kind of crossover happen well you know how there's all this money writing plays in New York? Oh, yeah. It's huge money. <laughs> yeah. So I moved back to New York. I'm like, I want to go be a playwright. And then I was like, I put on another play in New York. I wrote and directed a play in New York and produced it. And it went like in a, like in a nothing theater, right? Um, and five people came, right? Um, you know that scene in La La Land where some you know important person comes to her yeah. audition? That doesn't happen in real life. Nobody important ever comes to those things. Or if they do, you know, I've never heard of it. Um, yeah, it's a tiny theater, um, and it was, I don't think it was as good as the other play, uh, Lisa Strada. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know what to do here because I came all the way here. This is clearly not an easy path forward. And I had a full-time job, and I was writing and directing, you know, coming home at night, trying to organize 15 people I wasn't paying to, you know, come to a little theater to rehearse 
it was, you know, that's rough. Oh, yeah, uh, it was pretty cool. And I, I think I was sort of not ready to give up, but still sort of scrounging around for other ideas. And then finally I was reading a magazine called um, Edge. No, Next Gen. It was called Next Gen then. I think it became, that became Edge, or they're very similar. They're very and similar, there was a yeah. In the back. Sorry? They are very similar, yeah. But they're different magazines, but definitely you can, you can trace <laughs> the lineage. Yep. Um, and, um, and I thought I was actually the first magazine that really treated games, you know, like as something that, you know, it was, that magazine is much more written for adults than sort of like GamePro was at the time. Yeah. Um, and um, they had an ad for a job, you know, for a, a company called Looking Glass. And I had known Looking Glass from Ultima Underworld, um, which I was one of those games, like those hit you in the head games, like this is the future. Um, and there's an ad for a game designer there. I'm like, what's a game designer exactly? I didn't really know, but I applied. And I think this was back in the day when, you know, remember all the full motion video games in the 90s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, like, was, like Mad Dog McCree and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under a, um, oh God, something moon. Um, some really classic, sorry, my memory's just failing me. Um, and some, you know, and some games like Night Trap and stuff. You know, there was it was it was a, uh, an approach that briefly existed and then sort of got discredited fairly quickly and then recredited by Sam Barlow doing exactly, her- yeah, doing hers. Just what I was thinking. Um, but I think a lot of people thought that would be a very, and they had cutscenes at the beginning of Command and Conquer, like live action cutscenes they'd film, and then they did it in Looking Glass in Terra Nova. And I think that people thought there was going to be this big intersection of Hollywood and, and gaming at that time, which yeah. never really panned out. But I think they were attracted to me because you know they, I had a screenwriting thing on my resume, um, and they're like, "Oh, this guy knows something about Hollywood. Maybe we should hire his ass." Um, so um, I think um, I think you know I, I that's why i got the job that's crazy was that not terrifying though because you, you, you still like going so what's uh, what, what what's my job here how do i design well, a game well looking Glass is not like a super organized company they're a great company and you know hugely innovative but you get there and the first day there nobody knows who i am and nobody knows like what i'm supposed to be doing <laughs> i don't have a desk um and so this went on for like three days i was just like standing in a corner and then finally, some guy comes over and goes, here, you got to go meet Doug. And Doug was Doug Church, who ended up sort of being my mentor and the guy, you know, worked on with Thief, you know, worked with on Thief. Yeah. I think became Thief after going through multiple iterations. And, um, you know, that was um, that was a great experience. That was a really great experience for me. Um, well, Will, I'm going to come back to that, but I'm going to take a, a brief um, a brief tangent to ask you some relatively relatively quick fire questions. Don't feel you need to be fast about it. Um, is that is that okay with you? Sure. sure. Uh, Ken, if you had to to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Oh boy. Oh boy. I I I I I, I, I sense the grave for me. I'm, <laughs> I've never been very good at games. Um, I like them, but like. I always think like, I do well, and then I look at a leaderboard. I'm like, oh my god! Or you know, my friends like, oh yeah, you know, I got every achievement in that game, and I have like five. Um, so, I, you know, I think I throw up my hands and you know, throw myself on the mercy of the court. So, are you? I'm taking it from that that you're not a particularly competitive gamer. Has there ever been a game that you've really become fiercely competitive over? Uh, yeah, Star Control on the Genesis probably was the time I was most competitive. We used to, you know, me and my housemates would just 
get drunk and just like play the hell out of that thing and be screaming and yelling at each other. But I, you know, I, I'm pretty competitive in real life. I'm not very competitive in games. Okay, okay. Um, has there ever been a, a game that you've had to like uninstall from your system because it was taking over your life in in some aspect? I think the only game that really made me and my wife wonder was World of Warcraft. That I actually think that got deeply. I'm not a particularly addictive personality. I got deeply into that. Like deeply into when you that. say you and your wife did she play as well or was this she was no. like you need, you've got a problem here ken no i think she was starting to worry that like <laughs> i would just i was so obsessed with it um and i wasn't even playing um like raiding or anything i was just going around doing single by myself doing single player stuff for the most part and it just it 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 just sucked me in in a way that it's hard to describe. I, um, I purposefully stayed but, away yeah. from it because I knew it would do that to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're very, very good at that, and 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 that's the only time, you know, in the history of my relationship with my wife, where she expressed concerns about how much gaming I did, um, and that was that was a pretty intense. So, did you just go full cold turkey, uninstall, or was it For a while, gradual drift? Um. I, I think I just uninstall. I think that game, I could be wrong. She could probably correct me, but I think I did uninstall it, actually. I think I just said, okay, that, I got. I just got to stop. Um, okay. it, it was getting weird. <laughs> and, and look, it's a brilliant, beautiful world and a beautiful game. There's something about that thing that just spoke to me. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. And the, one of the reasons that kind of, because this, this comes up on the show a lot, obviously. This is a, one of the key kind of games that take over your life but i know that the worst thing is i know i would enjoy it in the moment but i would be so consumed with guilt afterwards because <laughs> i've spoken to people on the show who, who like basically just went full-time way for two years but they yes. have super fond memories of it and they're just like oh it was amazing i had the best time i made friends it was brilliant but i know that i would just be like no like that that's i, I would feel so bad afterwards no, well, I did get back into it actually with a group of friends, and we all, um, well, well, a group of guys I didn't really know who we really became friends. They invited me to their game, um, and we actually became really close. And then, then the experience was very different. That was more about hanging out with them. Yeah. And I, it, it didn't get the same. The game itself didn't draw its hooks back into me that way because I was able to sort of re reprocess it as a different type of experience. Okay. Um, Ken, with the with the the broad range of emotions that that games are. Uh, theoretically capable of producing what games have made you laugh huh because i think it's quite a, it's quite rare yeah um i found one game you know i think the portal games are very funny um i think that um it's actually yeah, it's you know it's honestly it's kind of a short list. It's very hard to do humor writing games. Yeah, it's absolutely. very, very difficult. Um, there's a lot of stuff in Ratchet and Clank. I love. Um, it's 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 hard. It's a very hard question to answer because uh, comedy's tough. Yeah, especially I mean, in games. Most of the people, most people who answer this question, there's like a list of you know ten games that most people always say like Portal and Tim Schafer adventure games and stuff, and then there's like a side group of physical comedy games like Quop and things, 
or then just general multiplayer shenanigans, which are, are very much of the moment and depending on the people you're with and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure lots of goofy and funny stuff happens in those games, just out of the you know out of the broad simulation, yeah. people doing things, you know. Uh, it, but you know, games that are sort of designed, you know, moments crafted to be funny, it's tough. It's really tough to to, to think of a lot. Okay, so let, let's. I'm sure somebody can come along and remind me of something, and I'm going to slap myself in the head. But but there's not a lot. No, no, no. and that's why I ask because it is like a, I'm interested in if there is. Because it's really good when it works, but it's just so hard to pull off. I think it's often just a question of timing. You know, it's hard to hard yeah, to do timing yeah. in a game. Um, yeah. So let's let, let's sort of rattle through the the rest of your your story career, though, Ken. Uh, so while you were working at Looking Glass, like I'm just I'm just interested in whether or not it changed your relationship with games because you know you hadn't really hadn't been something you were thinking about. So so did did playing games hold the same allure as it once did or did it start to kind of fade or change no i mean, still love games i i, mm. I think it, it definitely once you understand any kind of technical task like writing a movie or making a game it has to change your relationship because you sort of see the man behind the curtain you know how it's done you recognize similarities you know movies you know for instance i didn't know about three-act structure until i started writing movies and now you watch a movie and you just see those three acts you yeah. know um, you just see what the inciting incident is and you see you know, you know what the you know the midpoint is. You did those things just sort of because you become very aware of them, and that's not necessarily t- great for immersion. Um, but you appreciate them in a different way. You know, I watch shots, I watch movies now, and I'm like, how do they get that shot? Um, you know, how do they plan that? And yeah. I just watched this great. You know, like yeah, I was watching um, La La Land, and they had this opening dance routine on a um, on a highway in LA and it's the middle of the day. And my first thought is how do they get this highway in LA to shut down in the middle of the day to film this thing? You know, can you, you can imagine that, you know, what the yeah. cost of that would be, you know, and how do they, how do they plan this? Did they rehearse on the highway? You know, like and that's where all my head is going. And so I, then I watched a, a video of, of them rehearsing it. And actually they rehearsed it in a parking lot. They laid out the cars all in the same way as they did in the, in, in the, in the movie, but they didn't rehearse on the highway because it'd be too expensive. And of course, I'm sure once I got out of the highway, they found out everything was different, you know, and they had to make <laughs> spot adjustments. But that's, that's a pleasure you can't really have as much if you haven't, if you don't understand the technical thing you're making, but you lose something. You definitely lose something in terms of appreciating games and movies once you sort of understand how they're built technically. So, but but when you're in this position then to to start sort of making games and having a say in the kind of games that you wanted to make, like did you have, like had you ever in the past thought of uh, you know what sort of games you'd like to play? So did you have like a notebook full of ideas, or was it just a case of trying to see what's possible? No, because because you know the advantage of getting hired at Looking Glass is I think that that system that under Ultimate Underworld and then System Shock were the two were so big in my brain at that point. That all I wanted to do was make immersive sims. So well, you know, we didn't call them that back then. You know, that's what I, I thought. That was the future of of gaming because the sense of place yeah. in them, and um, and that and I I always liked you know sort of creating a sense of place, and so I didn't really have I didn't bring anything with me. You know, I didn't have to bring any ideas with me to look at. So it wasn't a game I wanted to make. You know, when Doug and I started working on the thing that became Thief, it was just, we kicked around literally dozens of ideas, you know, and we actually developed ideas, got concept art made for a bunch of ideas, 
and threw him away. Doug was very good at saying, yeah, all right, whatever. We worked on this, but it's not great. Let's throw it out. Um, and um, eventually we, did, we decided on the thing that was Thief. Um, but certain commonalities held through all those projects. Like, for, for instance? So, I mean, we always had this idea that, you know, at, at that point in most games, you'd see an AI and the AI would attack you, right? Yeah. Uh, or he'd see you, more to the point. And we always had this idea, it'd be fun that, you know, to sort of hide in the shadows and, and have an enemy say, is somebody there? And then we kept talking about that idea over and over again. That's an idea that the AI wouldn't have perfect knowledge of you. And that and and that's where you know stealth stuff came out of that, and evasion came out of that, and dealing with the soundscape came out of that, and the lightscape came out of that. But um, that was always that was the first idea, and through every, every I, crazy cockamamie idea we had, fictionally, in the world setting, uh, that idea was remained. That must have been like super exciting to like be around people that, I mean, that thought about games as much as you, because you know as you've described it, it's been a relatively solitary sort of interest you know there's been people around that played you so to be in this community where everybody loved games as much and wanted to talk about games as much like did you find it as exciting as yeah, I'm, so, I'm presuming so imagine if you grew up in america and and you love fish and chips and <laughs> nobody loved fish and chips and then you go to england and you're like oh my god everybody loves fish and chips here um again i probably just offended half your english oh, that's fine or your, or your uk audience um but did you did, did you think but, that though? Like, was that a very sort of yeah? Thing in it your was head? like yeah. It was like like going through the door into Oz. You know, you you got all of a sudden the world's full of like nerds and people like fighting over Star Trek and you know painting miniatures and playing Magic the Gathering and you know playing each other in Virtua Fighter or 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 um you know what was the one on the on the, on the Dreamcast um, Soul Calibur Soul Calibur um. You know that was amazing. To, people want to talk about games. People want to play games. People want to argue about games. People who liked sci-fi movies and we, you know, read some books I had read and knew my, you know, knew when I talked about a D twenty, knew what the hell I was talking about. That <laughs> you know, was amazing. It was like finding your tribe. You know, Absolutely. I think I can get that speech about this, but it is literally like for discovering your tribe of people. It. I, I, it what sort of makes it kind of more exciting in my head is is that you you were old like to me that's something you do kind of in university i mean even now like games are so prolific like so you know games are everywhere so kids probably find their their tribes much earlier and much younger than because of the internet obviously but to to, to be yeah that's quite old like to be finding those people that must have been amazing right yeah i i'd given up on it you know i I, I didn't realize there was a world of people out there who shared my interests, you know, like a group where they were grouped together somewhere. Uh, it was amazing. So let's, I guess, just like move on to, to Irrational. So so how did that come about? Like after, that was the shift, right? It went from Looking Glass to Irrational. Or am I missing a step? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, a bunch of us had, we had a project canceled at Looking Glass. So a bunch of us sort of, that was rough to go through. Um, not Thief. The, uh, we were all, I was also working on the Star Trek game, and um, Thief was going at a fairly slow pace. So I would basically sit half my day. I would have nothing to do, um, and so I'd come into work and I'd sit there with literally nothing to do, and it was really demoralizing. So me and two other guys quit, and then we started Irrational, um, and uh, Rob Fermi and John Che, 
and um, sort of rational, and then you know the rest of the story. But that's quite that, that that's bold, you know, like to do that at that stage. Like you, you must have had some idea of what you wanted to do or what you could potentially do. Or was it just have... purely a sake of like, oh, let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. No, no, no. I was scared shitless. Um, but once I make a decision to do something, for whatever reason, I, I usually end up making it. I not, not necessarily make it happen. I pursue it. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. I don't second guess. I, t- I make decisions like big decisions rarely, and when I do, I don't really second guess them. Okay. Uh, and I don't agonize over them afterwards. Um, I thought we were. I was scared because you know if that didn't work out, I walked out of my first job in the gaming world, and who knew if um, you know Thief hadn't shipped yet. I hadn't shipped a game yet. Um, I left before that, and you know I may have just made myself unhireable, which to some degree I guess I did because you know that was the last time I ever worked for, you know, ever got a job at another company. You know. Um, but did you have you know, like an idea? Like did did you have kind of an outline for System Shock 2 on paper before you left, or was that like, okay, we've started a company, now what do we do? Oh, we, are, we, we started working on some strategy game, I remember, trying to pitch that around. We didn't have any money, like no money. We were just three of us just paying ourselves out of our pockets. And, um, and you know, we didn't really have a plan. We didn't really, I don't know, I don't know what, honestly, I can't really tell you what, what we were thinking. <laughs> I'm I'm, yep. I'm I'm nervous on your younger self's behalf. Like that, that just seems crazy to me. Well, we had a pro- we got a job doing this one project, and that thing fell apart literally three weeks after we started it. And um, so we had to scramble and um, you know come up with something. And you know finally, you know we got a call from the guy we used to work for at Looking Glass, and he was like, he wanted to amortize the cost of the. The engine they had built by making more than one game on it, and so he wanted to do. He asked me if, we, if knowing that we knew the engine, the three of us knew the engine, because we had worked on it for Thief, if we wanted to do something, um, you know, on that engine, and that was the thing that became a system shock too. And how how did that feel when that kind of uh, came out to, to you know such a huge positive response? Like, um, was that was that validating? Uh, yeah, we were we were we were sort of at the point where we were like, oh my God, if this thing even gets done, we'll like be so happy because it was hard. You know, we didn't have any money. Um, we, not, a, not, not a single person on the core team had shipped, the, shipped a game before, um, you know, for, from the unirrational side, except for Rob, except for um, Rob Fermi, one of our co-founders has shipped a game or two. But the John and I never shipped a game. And um, we, were, we were like shocked, literally shocked at, at the response to it. Um, and then we hoped it would sell a bunch of units because you know we still had to pay the rent. Yeah, and it didn't, yeah. it didn't sell anything really. Oh, but really? It, but it reviewed really well. Oh, it, was a, it tanked. I did not know that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I, I bet it sold more in the last year, in the last two years, than it did in its first five years because it came out again and it had, you know, Bioshock had come out yeah. and you know, it, it became much more part of the you know, dialogue about games at this point. But I bet it probably sold 100 or 150,000 units when it came out. That's insane to me. Um, so what did, how about the sort of the intervening period then? Because we all know, you know, you've gone on to do the, the Bioshock series of games, but like there was a big gap between that and, and the first Bioshock, right? So what, what were you working on? 
Well, the good news was is that there was always people at the publishers who played the game, who who had played System Shock Two, and so that opened a lot of doors for us. And we ended up doing a bunch of games. Um, we did some a game for a company called Crave called Freedom Force, and we did oh, another. Of course, game. yeah, and it's SWAT Four, right? Uh, yeah, well, that was with Vivendi. So SWAT Four and Tries were with Vivendi, and um, SWAT Four is amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, the uh, team really. Really, I, I can claim almost zero credit on that. The team just really ran with that um, while we were, I was working on um, Freedom Force. Um, they really, I think they really understood that. I think it's probably the best of, of the SWATs. Um, oh, yeah. And um, I, they did a great job. And then, um, then Bioshock happened. But in these sort of, in the, the, these years while you're leading up to that, like, games are, are just broadening in so many amazing ways like did you did you sense that like was it quite an inspiring time to to be within games like were there were there games that were released during that period where you're like oh my god this this changes everything this is amazing i mean yeah absolutely there are great games um you know i think uh, i i wasn't um it was going to be a bigger business than than I'm not sure that I necessarily liked, you know. Yeah. Um, I like I like all the new people coming into it, but from but the way the business worked, um, the stakes got a lot higher, you know, um, and the expectations in the console coming from a PC side that you had to sort of make console games was a little scary to me. Yeah. Um, at the time, because we hadn't done that before, and we tried our one game we did with with Crave, and that didn't really didn't work out. We never even shipped it, um, and so, you know. It would, then we made PC games, and then the PC games market was just at that point just dying, and um, it's pretty scared. And I, we, uh, sorry, I just mean in terms of like games that were released, like games that you would have been playing around that time, because it was like you know Dreamcast and early PlayStation and stuff. There was a real explosion of of ideas, I guess, and you know broadening of what was possible. Even very early kind of indie stuff like Flash games and things. Yeah, there's. Um, there's always good games to play. There's no, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life where I'm like, oh, there's no good games coming out. Um, games have always, to me, it's still an art form. You know, that's figuring itself out and inventing new things, and now even reinventing. Like you just, you know, you pointed out the, mm. you know, the MOBA connection. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like we were talking about, um, and um, it's it's never been a boring time to to in video games, as far as I'm concerned. How about how about now? How what, like what are you playing now, and what is like? Are you as excited as you've ever been? I suppose. I think um, I think that I'm getting it's getting harder just to impress and overwhelm people with you know how many polygons you can put on the screen. Yes. And I don't mean that as a as a knock on on beautiful games with a lot of polygons. It just the technology. There's a leveling off of the technology, and that the sort of so the brute force method of, of doing, you know, like if you look at Bioshock Infinite, there's just a lot of assets in that game, right? And we we're able to just you know the work that went into craft all those assets was a huge amount of work, and you can keep doing that and keep doing that, but at, at some point you're going to start hitting diminishing returns yeah. because people seen beautiful graphics before same with cg and movies it's hard to impress you know with cg and movies um now than it was you know when jurassic park came out or terminator came out um 
Terminator 2. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, we, you, that's why you start seeing lots of experimentation visually now and aesthetics becoming more important than graphics. And I think that's probably a good thing. And, you know, virtual reality, have you, have you tried that? I mean, that, that seems to be yeah. the next sort of big, big leap from the people I know that have played it. Resident Evil 7 in particular, by all accounts, is a, is a, a real game changer. Yeah, I mean, it's got to get... Um, I have to play Resident Evil 7. I haven't played it in VR yet, so I'll have to, I'll have to hook that up. Um, it has to get a little less clunky, I think. Um, right, right now, it's... It, Right now, the VR platform as a game machine is not necessarily proven itself. As an experience, yes. Like being and putting that helmet on really transports you to another yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. It's 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 still uncomfortable as a gaming from from where I'm sitting. It's still a bit uncomfortable as a gaming experience. And so you know, ergonomically, and you know, having a helmet on your head, um, and you know, that can change over time. Um, but it, you can't really, you know, you can't sort of do for traditional first person walking around in it because it just creates a lot of nausea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, tr- it's a tricky problem, but, you know, it's what we do. We solve problems. We solve problems. Um, just to sort of finish the kind of the, the, the lineage part of it, like, are there any games from the, maybe the past sort of 10 or 15 years or even anything you're playing now that had, had, has had any kind of impact on you in the same way that something like Adventure or Zelda would have had on you as a kid? It's, you know, it gets tougher as you get older, right? Um, Absolutely, yeah. Because you just have you've seen you've seen a, you're older, you've seen a lot of things, you've seen a lot of I've, technology. I've watched it grow from the very you know beginnings, the industry, the very very beginnings. You still get things that surprise you, like the Nemesis system in Shadow of Mortar. I thought was really amazing. Um, I thought I thought. Um, Oh God! Um, what's that game from the Danish developer that came out this year? I, it's like my favorite game of the year, and I can never remember the name. Beyond not um, beneath, I don't, I don't remember what it's called. Um, it's the game that played. It's thing to play dead. Who did? Um, who who did? Um, oh, Inside. Inside, yes, Inside. Inside, I thought was stunning. I just like loved that experience from start to end. I'm playing a lot of Invisible Ink right now from Clay, which is a very sort of like XCOM meets Thief kind of game, and I'm playing a ton of that, and I love that. Um, there's definitely things that can change my life. Rocksmith changed my life. It taught me how to play guitar, you know, um, and that's a, you know made by a video game developer. Um, really, I've never heard anyone actually like I I learned how to play the drums through Rock Band, and no, 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 Rock no, Band is always my favorite. Rocksmith's not rock band. No, no, no. Well, I, I understand that. That's, actually, that's what I mean. But that, that that was what I meant. Like the, I've never heard anyone. I don't think I've ever met anyone that's played Rocksmith before. It's it's amazing. Like you literally hook up an actual guitar to it, and it reckon you know instead it's not you act, any guitar basically any guitar with an output you hook up to it and you just fucking play songs on it. And I you know it taught me how to play electric guitar. And was that uh, was I, that the intention, or was that just oh this will be a fun no, game to play? No, it's not really a. It's really, I mean, it's a game sort of. It's really a, a training tool, and it's an excellent one. Um, and that, you know, that changed my life. Now I've got, you know, I'm sitting next to my desk. I've got five guitars sitting lined up. <laughs> uh, those are my current collection. You know, I still have, I have some old retired ones um, out back. But um, 
you know, it, it added something to my life. Now I, I just spend hours a night playing music and I'm not very good, but the joy it's added to my life. I think that's a game I owe huge debt to. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I think, I think that's a nice place to, to wrap up. Uh, if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, please do now or just, you know, let people know where they can get news and updates and stuff. Um, well, you know, at our at, um, IG Levine um, on Twitter, it's a good spot. And our company is irrationalgames.com, even though we're the former Irrational Games, and that name will probably change very soon. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Cool. Was that okay for you, Ken? Did you have a good time? Oh, yeah. I'm sure you could tell. I just You brought me back to a lot of places. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm glad. Really I'm glad I could. Um, cool. Well, thanks very much. Now, you're very good at it. You're very good at this. Thanks very much. I've uh, I've done a lot of them now, so I, I feel like I, I should be at this stage. <laughs>